Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Today, for our Maria's discussion, we're going to be actually doing a little bit of his later career and something from his uh, from quite early in his career, uh, The Infatuations and The Man of Feeling. We'll be starting off with The Infatuations and then kind of weaving some of the themes from The Man of Feeling, I think, into, uh, into that conversation. Yeah, if I remember correctly, and I can just, I could probably just double check the his, you know, bibliography. Uh, the Infatuations was the first novel that came out that he wrote post Your Face Tomorrow, which is interesting. Um, in that it's, it definitely, I feel like is marking a little bit of a switch, or switch is the wrong word, a bit of a turn in how he's writing what what his uh, consider what Maurice's considerations are. And it's really reflected what comes with Thus Bad Begins. Um, the cast of characters is becoming more expansive. The Infatuations is structured around a, really like two or three conversations, which is often true of his work. But there is a greater plot narrative, um, time span even, taking place here. And that's something I think we see much more pronounced uh, in uh, this work, Thus Bad Begins, Berta Isla, um, Nevinson, so on. So I don't know what I don't know what the so on would be there. I think I just rattled off all the the last, the last few books. But yeah, um, the Infatuations was published in in Spain in 2011, um, and so yeah, I think that that does make it the book that came after, at least the the novel. Maybe there's some nonfiction works, but the novel that came um, after the third volume of Your Play, Your Face Tomorrow. Yeah, I believe Written Lives, um, the collection of his um, observations of other uh, of famous writers, uh, I believe New Directions brought that out um, after Your Face Tomorrow, um, though my memory could be could be wrong about that. And that was, you know, pieces culled from uh, other places. Um, but yeah, it's, I think, a really in- intriguing book. Um, I think we're moving into some interesting territory here. He's once again becoming more more preoccupied, I think, perhaps with uh, crime and justice and what what should be done when some when someone does something. Um, certainly, that appears in the other works, but in, in much more of a, a moral sense. This has almost a yeah a, a, a retributive sense, you know. Who 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 do you denounce? What happens next uh, when you uncover some form of wrongdoing, and not just someone behaving poorly or a woman dying in your arms? And what do you owe her family for an explanation? But uh, an actual an actual murder in this case is what uh, really sets the action, all the action, uh, in motion. Yeah, I think that the I will say that. Um, in our discussion of My Heart Hemmed In, I confess that I had picked that for our store book club selection and it didn't go over so well. I can happily say that I picked The Infatuations for another uh, later uh, bookstore discussion and it was fabulously popular um, to my 
joy because I think that it lays up some really intriguing themes about, well, just the, just the premise. And I guess I'll, I'll lay it out there that a man who knows that he's terminally ill decides that, you know, he wants to die before he, before he hopefully gets super, super ill and, you know, can't really function very well. And he wants to die, but he doesn't want to know the exact manner or date of his death. And then his accomplice in this um, endeavor has a, has a problem. And those who know of what happened have a problem and are trying to sort through the fact of, well, if you're involved in a murder and you're not the one that, that, uh, held the weapon, um, or if you weren't directly involved in the actual killing, how culpable are you? And I think those are just themes that um, are, are juicy and intriguing, and people people like to talk about them and think about them. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, uh, there is some Macbeth reference throughout the infatuations, but the work that he really goes to uh, is the French this time. He brings up Balzac, but he also brings up uh, the Three Musketeers, which is a fascinating choice for, for, Maria, for Maria to dig into. But very specifically, you know, Milady de Winter and uh, her character and what, yeah, what, what, what are the demands? What, what does denunciation mean? What are the demands of justice uh, for someone else? Um, to enforce a justice, justice of some kind onto someone else. Um, I will point out, though, that the, the terminal illness is one version of events or, or one suggested story. Um, so to very quickly summarize, which I think I always say I'm going to do, and then I don't remotely quickly do it's it quickly. Hard, it's hard to quickly summarize the plot in a Moraes novel. Very, very much so. Um, but in an attempt at that, um, our narrator this time is uh, Maria Dulles. Uh, she works in a publishing house uh, in Madrid um, and has some really amazing commentary about publishing, about writers, which I don't know. I, I feel like you could very much see Maria's holding some of some of these opinions of both how publishers work and how other writers are, or maybe even how he himself, how he views himself as a writer. Um, she every morning or just about every morning before work, she has breakfast at a cafe and observes this couple whom she refers to as the perfect couple. They seem re relatively well to do. They seem very much in love and just in their own bubble, in their own world. And one day they stop showing up. And she later finds out that the murder that she skipped reading about in the newspaper one day was actually his murder. Um, his name was Miguel de Verne. He was tied uh, to, he was part of a movie making family and a um, homeless man uh, stabbed him to death as he exited his car one morning after uh, getting breakfast with his wife. So the book actually opens with Maria remarking on the fact that she saw him at the exact same last time as his wife saw him uh, living and sort of the unfairness of that. Uh, Maria eventually meets uh, the, uh, the widow, Louisa, and in so doing, uh, meets her friend, who is also uh, the widow's friend, but also the best friend, seemingly, of uh, Miguel, a man named uh, Javier Diaz Varela. Um, Diaz Varela and Maria 
begin seeing each other. Uh, it's, you know, they talk a lot, but it seems to be primarily a, you know, a, something of a passing fling, though for um, Maria, it's much more. She is quite taken with him. And I don't know, this is one of those unusual things that happens sometimes in Maria's novels where you can kind of see him telegraphing what's what's about to come, but it doesn't quite matter because he's so good at structure and such an interesting writer. Maria knows that Diaz Varela is in love with Luisa, that his uh, that he's constantly checking on her, that it, it, it can't just be a sense of duty to his pat to his lost friend, that also there's more there and that he is yeah, that he's in some ways waiting for Louisa to get past her initial grief such that she notices him and, and moves on to him. But in her own infatuation, in her own interest in, I'm just going to call him, so I don't have to keep saying his, you know, what Marius refers to as the double-barreled surname. I'm just going to start calling him Javier. It occurs to her, Maria, that if Louisa died, that maybe then Javier would notice her and fall towards her. Which then leads her to think, well, but for Javier, wouldn't it have been the case that if Miguel had died, then Luisa would have opportunity to notice him and move on to him. And one evening while staying, while, while at Javier's apartment after they've had sex and she's fallen asleep, uh, he gets a visitor, um, a name named Rui Beriz, who we've met before in Tomorrow and the Battle Think on Me, and is also the subject, uh, the, the main character of the novella. Uh, bad nature or with Elvis in Mexico, who shows up uh, and Javier and Rui Beriz have this conversation that she mostly overhears that very much seems to suggest that the homeless man who uh, attacked Miguel ostensibly because he was accusing Miguel of uh, turning his daughters into prostitutes, that they in fact had somehow put him up to it, that it wasn't as random and uh, out of nowhere as it seemed that there was a guiding hand of some sort behind this. This scene reminds me so much of a heart so white where you have someone in the bedroom, um, you know, kind of overhearing this discussion. In this case, it seems that maybe Javier really didn't want um, Maria to overhear this, but um, basically the secret is revealed through someone in another room overhearing something that maybe they should or should not, maybe they, they want to know, or maybe they don't want to know. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly though, that reveal in A Heart So Light pretty much brings the novel to a close. I mean, that, that really is sort of the final action. Um, this is the midpoint of the novel. Um, and again, I think this marks some some of the different things that Marius is doing. Um, I mean, this novel in some respects has a bit of the, the mystery element to it. Like it, it feels much more like a, I'm going to investigate and uncover the truth behind this killing, which is even referenced and somewhat mocked um, at points throughout the novel, that, that sort of structure. And um, <laughs> there, there's even, I mean, there is frankly like a parlor scene at the end, but it's Javier giving away all the clues. So after overhearing this conversation, she does not see Javier for a couple of weeks. He calls her up and asks her over. And it's very clear when she gets there that he is going to try and tell her a story uh, that he is, that he realized that she overheard everything or at least enough to have an opinion on what took place. And he's going to fill in some of the facts. He doesn't dispute 
any or really what she thinks is, took place, that Rui Baris and another intermediary, they, they planted a cell phone on this man, were calling him and telling him that, you know, this is what's happening with his daughters and who is responsible and so on and so on and got him a knife. But the turn here is that Javier claims that um, Miguel had been diagnosed with cancer, uh, was metastasized throughout his body, that all the effects of it were going to be horrific, as you said. But the idea of committing suicide was completely impossible. He, he could not do that. The family doctor who actually tells um, who gives the full diagnosis and uh, to uh, Miguel is another character we've met before, um, Dr. Vidal who in Thus Bad Begins is the one that explains to Juan all of Benvechen's treachery and evil doings in the past. It's really fun that these throw, I mean, these little Easter eggs and intermingling of stories, this, I mean, this universe he's create, he creates is, it's what makes rereading him delightful. It isn't just the gorgeous prose, or at least for me, that's part of it. It isn't just the gorgeous prose and how, expert he is it's also just sort of the the winks and nods and sort of the the welcome into his head um and and this universe um so this is javier's claim that he was asked by miguel uh he's told by miguel that i have a month and a half to two months before the symptoms get bad find a way to kill me somewhere in that time you know however you don't tell me how you're going to do it don't tell me the day just i don't want to go through this or put my family through this it would be better if i was dead but i can't do it myself i'm asking this of you my friend and that's what he does now maria this and throughout this conversation is occasionally posing questions to him which irritates the hell out of javier because he's just trying to get this all out but um she very much is picking up on the fact that this this could be all complete bs like this could be the story that he is telling her so that it's no longer, it's a assisted suicide. It is not a homicide or at the very, or at the very least it is a death, not a, not a murder that he is not a murderer necessarily um, with everything that comes with that word. And I think we're left in kind of an ambivalent state there. I mean, she does run into Ruby Baris later and it seems to act despite initially thinking that it was a setup that Ruby Baris was looking for her to try and intimidate her or make sure she isn't, you know, having any thoughts about it. It, it does seem that he was trying to find her and run into her because he wanted to see her. There was a scene earlier where he saw her half naked and clearly liked how she looked. But Ruby Baris even says that, you know, oh, wait, he, he told you about the sickness? And it again, this could be... <laughs> This could be Rebury's maintaining an act, which seems unlikely, or what Javier told Rebury's to get him to go along with it. And the novel closes a couple years later. Um, she is, I believe, married at that point. She's at a restaurant, still in publishing, with a author that she keeps some scorn upon. And across the restaurant sees Javier and Luisa, but they are they are now the perfect couple. They are in their bubble. They seem to be fully enraptured with one another and moving through a world that doesn't have sharp edges. And she goes over, not really sure what she's going to say, but Louisa sees her and pops up and says hello and you know, call, re refers to her as the, um, what was it? The very proper young woman? No, it was that's- Yes, that's what, I think that's what Miguel um, called her because for so long they were frequenting the same restaurant and- would notice each other across the restaurant at different tables. But, you know, to, to Maria, they were just the perfect couple. And 
to the perfect couple, Maria was just, yeah, I think that's the term that they used. And in that moment, she decides that she's not going to say anything. She's not going to reveal the fact that she had uh, a relationship with Javier, that whatever his reasons, Javier had a, had a hand in the death of Miguel. She decides to, to leave it, that she doesn't, she can't put herself in the position to decide how a crime should be adjudicated, how it should be dealt with, that these things are, that there are the facts of what took place, but then there are the stories of why it took place and who is, in a way, who is she to force her, her story upon um, the story that Louisa is now engaged with. And this is one of the things that I think ties this so much to Thus Bad Begins, to Berta Isla, to Tomas Nevinson is, is, how do you deal with how do you deal with wrongdoing and and not just not not, not just a financial crime not just you know being rude to a friend or or, or a betrayal of some level but like very serious life altering damage that one person inflicts upon another how do you address that or redress that or or don't you or do you, do you just consign it to the, the dead being the dead and and you continue to move along and i'm not really sure where precisely it lands here and certainly it does not land in the same way that say tupra and nevinson or at least nevinson was for a while landing that accounts need to be put right it's much more of the the this is in some ways not my story to tell not my story to be involved with any longer yeah, there's a phrase that's used in the book, and it's murder by instigation. And I really like that. That's an intriguing intriguing kind of way to possibly depict what, um, what Javier is responsible for here. And I also think it's very interesting to think about... Um, I mean, I kind of put myself in Miguel's situation. Um, and would I ever sign up for this kind of weird death? And, and what he kind of, it seems to me like he was trying to straddle both a certain death, but the uncertainty of the circumstances. Right. There's a really great line, um, that I, I just, it's a turn of phrase that I've never yeah, that you just don't encounter outside of like something like Maurice's writing. I didn't give him hope, but at the same time, I did enough for him to be able to enjoy the saving grace of uncertainty. And that saving grace of uncertainty is just that that lands like a hammer blow. That is such a beautiful way of, I mean, even just thinking about how we all move through the world, like that you, you know, anything can happen at any moment, but we have to function as though. The worst things are not going to happen because otherwise, how can you function in the world? Right. I mean, if if you knew the exact time and date of your death, which is the premise of another novel, not not a Marais novel, but how would you how would you act? You know, would would that be a comfort to you or an amazing discomfort? And I have to feel like for most of us, it would be pretty horrible to know that fact. And that's kind of the grace of the uncertainty, I think, that he's referring to there. I also think it's interesting in this book how, of course, you know, the title, the infatuations. Maria's, Maria's infatuated with, with Javier, for sure. And Javier's infatuated with Luisa. 
But there's also Maria's infatuation with the perfect couple. You know, there's a there's a pretty nice buildup of this at the beginning of the book, how, you know, she sees this couple practically every day while she goes in and has her cup of coffee and they're having breakfast and they're always laughing. They're always very engaged in conversation and with each other. Um, I think this was before, you know, cell phones, but, um, but nonetheless, even if they had cell phones, you would, you would think that they would probably not even look at their phones while they were together. They were just, they are just like totally absorbed with one another and Maria's kind of infatuated with that kind of connection that they have. Um, yeah, it, it, there's a there's a lot of levels to this. And also, I mean, when you were commenting about the fact that there's a lot of cutting acerbic remarks about what a pain in the ass writers and authors can be and how they can be pompous and and, you know, maybe that's Maria's projecting. Well, he did name his narrator Maria. So, you know, um, maybe he's trying to show that she's not so, so far <laughs> removed from what he really thinks about the same subject. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's this interesting, as you're saying, like this interesting notion of causality here, right? Like, and, and, and the, the cascade of infatuations and how they play one into the other. If, Maria wasn't quite as infatuated the perfect couple as she was. She wouldn't have walked up to Louisa after um, Miguel had died and she saw her again to offer condolences and wouldn't have been invited over to the house, which then began her infatuation with Javier, who was already infatuated with Louisa. So perhaps, I mean, like, it's just sort of the, this turtles all the way down sort of, uh, of effect. And there's a, an, another line earlier, unlikely truths are useful and, and life is full of them, far more than the very worst of novels. No novel would ever dare give house room to the infinite number of chances and coincidences that can occur in a single lifetime, let alone all those that have already occurred and continue to occur. It's quite shameful the way reality imposes no, no limits on itself. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, he's, yes, he's talking certainly about, about crime and all that, um, or at least how to ass- uh, how to assign blame and what th- that blame means i guess in in a way um, that's a sloppy way of putting it but that's trying to remove criminality but he's also talking about the messiness of life and the messiness of life as it's contained or reflected in a novel and i mean that's what he's been doing in a lot of his novels and certainly that's what <laughs> the man of feeling is a very a very messy life being <laughs> explored this is in some ways and this is going to sound like a capstone. I'm not trying to capstone this particular part of the conversation, but I feel like, in the same way that All Souls is a really would be a really great introduction to Maurice's work, so are the infatuations. I would not want someone to start with Thus Bad Begins because I would rather them have a sense of how he writes and what he's doing, so you can pick up on it a little bit better. And and Thus Bad or or even a Heart So White. Um, but this is such a there's so many of his concerns, and there's yeah, there's so many of the things that he thinks about and that he um, tends to mull over uh, in his novels um, present here that I think it makes for a really, and, and, and frankly, it's just, it's an engaging plot. Like, who doesn't like a, a bit of a, a murder mystery, a bit of a figuring out what happened when? Yeah, there are different levels in terms of, you know, what what the truth is. Um, but But 
I think with all of Marius's work and with this one is no exception, there's there's that that overlaying moral issue that's so much deeper than just oh I got to find out what actually happened you know what's what's the truth about how Miguel died um an interesting question but not the most interesting question or the most profound question those are the ones that Maria is is trying to suss out in terms of how much she wants to personally feel or blame Javier for um, Miguel's awful end. And I mean, it's not like the result was a peaceful death for Miguel. He was stabbed multiple times, really brutally. And one has to think that when he, you know, tapped his buddy Javier on the shoulder, presumably, and said, hey, could you help me out with this little problem that I have? I'm I'm going to die soon, but I want you to kill me before that or have me killed before that. Um, I don't think he was talking about dying in this, <laughs> in this horrific way, which was, which was obviously I, extremely painful, but would also be very painful for his family too. You know, I mean, a, a bullet in the head's one thing, but this like multiple stab wounds and bleeding out on the ground, which the newspapers apparently had pictures of and, yeah, not the way that anyone would want to go, I don't think. I mean, and the pictures are something that Maria reflects on multiple times of how this was a incredibly well-put-together man who always dressed a certain way with a, a nod to the old-fashioned, but at the same time, you know, not not stodgy or anything. And for the last image of him to be on the ground with his cufflinks, you know, torn off of his shirt and exposed and tubes running into him as they try and stabilize him all, all those things, it just seemed, that seemed a horror to her. And, and, and both before she knew, when she saw the picture in the paper, she immediately had that thought of this for this person. But then when she knew that it was Miguel, it, you know, she returns to it, I think, at least twice more in the novel. And then that's also, a, in terms of um, the validity of, of the truthfulness of Javier's story, that's something that she kind of goes back to is that if... Uh, Supposedly they worked on him for five hours to try and save his life. Uh, but in no mention of the write-ups does there say that they found cancerous growths throughout his body or, or any of these things. She's like, and if it's metastasized across his body, why wouldn't they say that? I mean, they might not say it because it's irrelevant to the story. He does a really nice job, Marius, of introducing a lot of ambiguities to it and, and putting it, you know, and, and eventually bringing Maria to a point that she uh, states at the at the very end of, um, as I said, I cared nothing for justice or injustice. What business were they of mine? For if Diaz Varela had been right about one thing, as had the lawyer Durville, this is a reference to the, the Balzac, in his fictional world and in his time that does not pass and set, stays quite still, it was this, far more crimes go unpunished than punished, not to speak of those we know nothing about or that remain hidden, for there must inevitably be more hidden crimes than crimes that are known about and recorded. I think in a certain way, it's coming back to the fact that Miguel's dead and how things progress from there in terms of, I think there's more of a weighing up of what would be just here. Would it be just to reopen all these, reopen the wounds and throw this all back to Louisa after she's moved on with her life? Is it so pressing that Javier, be, if he did commit this, be brought to, and he even says, you know, the reasons wouldn't matter to a court of law. 
you know, what we did, you know, the facts of it would, would be sufficient. Um, does it matter to have him jailed or held accountable um, and not get his happily ever after, as it were? Um, does that matter more than, um, than what Louise's life would be like moving forward? I, ha- I just have to, um, not that anyone can accuse us of not being applaudatory toward Moraes on this podcast, but um, I think this book in particular just shows a really extraordinary imagination on the part of this author. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about, I don't know how he worked exactly, whether, you know, he had a whole notebook of, of novel ideas that he would like, you know, ruminate on for a decade before actually putting pen to paper on any of them or whether, you know, it was, okay, it's time to write a new novel. Hmm. What should this one be about? But just to kind of explore these really complex, ambiguous moral questions, uh, in a way, I mean, I, I, I really couldn't think of a better, a better setup for the exploration of these kind of questions than the one that he gave us. And I'm not quite sure, I mean, I don't read every book that's ever printed, but this just seems like a really unique way of looking at the existential question of life and death and and what who's good and who's bad. And yeah, it's it's just brilliant. Absolutely. I mean, I think I mean, I also think that what's what's interesting I, I had a text exchange with some friends the other day about, you know, not speaking ill of the dead or, or some such thing. And I don't think that's such a big deal personally, um, mostly because I don't think things should, we should ignore the worst things about people simply because they're dead. But the larger point, I think, and I think this is something that maybe Maria's infected in me or I came to a similar conclusion. I don't think that Maria's cares what the dead think for him. They are dead. Like, their their concern their consideration uh, is is no longer a, a valid one like they their story has ended the 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 facticity of their life is 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 over um so it's really much more about what the living need or care about or make decisions around um yeah i think there's 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 an element to his moral philosophy if you can call it that that what someone wants or would want stops mattering the moment they cease to a certain degree, which is, I don't think often reflected elsewhere. I can't think of too many other novelists who, who would take that position or, or, or at least utilize it in their writing the way he does. And, you know, if the, if the idea of the perfect couple here is not fraudulent, then you would think that Miguel would have above and beyond anything else wanted to do what was best for Louisa, knowing that she was going to be left behind. And that's a good question. I mean, was this, would a would kind of a slow agonizing death um, where she had opportunity to, you know, for a long goodbye, would that have been better for her than this horrible stabbing? Or n- even if it what didn't, end in stabbing. Maybe it would have been like a, a nice silent quick poisoning a la Agatha Christie. But but even so, I mean, is that I don't know how much he was thinking about her in making this 
decision. If if the story did really go down the way Javier is telling us it went down. Well, but then even let's like taking it, pushing it a little bit further. Let's say that Javier is completely full of it and that he is lying to Maria. And he has, he has taken the two weeks between her overhearing this, him figuring out that she heard it and coming up with a story that he could, that he used or a story he already did use with uh, Rui Baris. Wouldn't, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound like I'm arguing for a murderer, but wouldn't, wouldn't, Miguel rather Louisa be happy and be cocooned once again in perfect coupledom than looking over her shoulder the rest of her life at all of her friendships because her husband's closest friend murdered him in order to be closer to her. You know, like according to Javier's story, Miguel want Miguel wanted this to die like this so that he didn't suffer and so that his family didn't suffer. Well, he's dead now and Javier is providing providing that you know sucker for his wife and has recreated what she previously had life moves on no longer for for miguel so maybe this maybe maybe in having having died miguel would rather this outcome than javier behind bars who knows Wow, we really went on a journey yeah. on, on that particular thought process. Yeah, well, it, it's the kind of book that just makes you, you know, you, you think about it long after you finish reading it because it, it's just it's just a great puzzle of a novel. But maybe we should um, talk about The Man of Feeling a little bit and, and um, kind of what it's doing that might be a little bit similar or a little bit different from some of the other Marais novels that we've spoken about on the show so far. Sure. The Man of Feeling is uh, from much earlier in Marais's career. Um, I believe it's his fourth novel. Um, it was published in Spain in 1986. I mean, so I, I probably first read this book in like 2000. Yeah, I first read it in um, probably 2004. Or so, Lori can see me because we have video on this. But I'm looking at the label on the back of it from the store I worked at at the time, and I can still read the labels to see when books came in and all that. Because for some reason I can't remember Latin anymore, but I can still read barcode labels from you know almost 20 years ago now. <laughs> so, but what I was going to say about that is that I mean it was written in 1986. I read it you know in the early 2000s and reread it for this, and it's remarkable how modern it feels i mean this this could be a story that's taking place right now in some in so many ways i think it's certainly one i mean it certainly feels like uh an early work he's definitely trying a lot of his a lot of the themes are still there um there is an interweaving of some shakespeare but this time via opera and i mean his style is certainly and and his his ability to um undercut the narrator and how trustworthy the narrator might be is is certainly really um, well, already well developed here. It is functionally the recounting of a dream um, by someone who periodically claims that he can remember with perfect clarity what someone said, and then in the a few pages later say, "I think this is the basically what the person was saying." And but this is again 
his memory of a dream, which is in itself a reflection of events that took place four years previously. Um, so a lot of fun metatextual layers that he's that he's throwing in there. Um, do you want to give a stab at a uh, a quick summary there, Lori? Maybe you do a better job than I do. I'm not sure. I will, um, but I'll try. Um, the um, the narrator here, um, as Tom suggested, is a uh, an opera singer. So he's constantly traveling to foreign cities and singing in operas. Um, and he's kind of on the road a lot. We're told at the opening that um, that he had a fear of flying, which he's now overcome. But he's kind of recounting this story to us because he's just woken from a dream that brought all of this stuff back that happened four years ago when he was performing Othello in Madrid. And on his way to Madrid, he was in a train and he was sitting across from three people and none of these people were engaging with him. It was a guy looking out the window and a woman that was asleep and another gentleman. Um, he didn't really understand what the relationship was, but um, that evening he's at the bar of the um, hotel where he's staying in Madrid, um, drinking his milk, which I guess he does as an opera singer. And one of the, the guys, the guy that was looking out the window, um, a guy who introduces himself as Dato, says, hey, you were on my train. And they kept, they you know, they engage in a conversation and uh, Dato learns that the narrator's in the opera, Othello, that's going to be playing in a couple of weeks in Madrid. And Dato kind of um, suggests that he and the woman who was asleep on the train, her name is Natalia Manor, start hanging out together. And Natalia is married to... Um, Senor Menor, I'm not sure they ever tell us what his first name is, maybe they do, who's a Belgian gentleman and a kind of a, a banker, a Belgian banker, very, very busy all the time. And Dato explains that he's basically Natalie's handler. He travels around with them and uh, Senor Menor is constantly um, doing business, you know, hardly has time to to say hi to his wife. He's busy, busy, busy all the time, going here, going there. And she's bored, so he kind of hangs out with her. And he's also, in some ways, a substitute brother for her because she uh, has a brother, Monte, who uh, recently moved to South America, and so she's missing him. And so what we learn is uh, how uh, the narrator and Nat Natalia kind of um, started doing things together, exploring the city, doing things that the opera singer narrator really had never done before in all of his travels because he just never feels really comfortable in the places that he travels to. And he's kind of a loner. We learned that back home in Barcelona, he's got a, um, a lady friend. Her name is Berta, <laughs> um, probably... I don't know. That might be the first Berta we we uh, hear about in um, in Moraes, but definitely not the the last. And he's not that in love with Berta, but he becomes more and more infatuated with Natalia. And as he learns more about Natalia and her life, 
he learns what an ogre Senior Manor is. And at one point, Senior Manor kind of confronts the opera singer, um, kind of like a stay away from my wife. Um, you're, you're becoming way too interested in her and she's mine and hands off. That kind of then culminates in a separation that happens uh, where Natalia goes off with the, the opera singer for a period of time. It, I think that the novel really kind of explores in a lot of ways how the, the opera singer feels like he's so very different from Signor Manor, but maybe isn't. Yeah, there's um, a, in that conversation between Manor and um, the narrator, there's a, Manor makes a comment saying that, that the opera singer is not the first person to have begun to get close to Natalia, but that I've waited 15 years for my wife to love me. You've just arrived or something like that. And there's a very cold and clinical feel to how Manor talks and, and how he engages, but that kind of peek behind the curtain of what he's what he's waiting for, what he's hoping for, um, I thought was really interesting. And well, I'm just one of those things that that I think throughout his books, Maurice is very good at in terms of adding complexity and layers to characters that you may only meet for, only hear from in person for a few pages, but they have they're a whole person. They have dimensionalities that you'll never fully know or have time to explore, which is quite impressive. I think that I feel like the narrator kind of at least thwarts my expectations because at first you think that, oh, what could what could this cold Belgian banker, Senior Manor, have in common with someone whose life is the arts, you know, and is a very cultured person. But actually the narrator is is a rather cold person himself and although he get, is interested in Natalia there's until the assignation between he and Natalia which she precipitates not him you, you really don't feel that there's any lust or passion or yeah it's just it's just very cold and clinical which which I thought was a really interesting character study and not what I expected yeah, I mean, that's certainly reflected in um, his relationship with Berta. I mean, when he describes her, it's very, I mean, it, it almost feels like he's always describing her from behind, you know, like, this is what she looks like rolled over at night. And I mean, and Berta appears as more than just his, his previous love. Um, he eventually gets a letter from Berta's husband, um, her husband of the last 18 months, that Berta had died. And she had taken a fall down, um, he describes a particular kind of building in uh, Barcelona, a house that they call towers. And she taken a fall down the stairs and was clearly badly banged up, but seemed to be okay. And then uh, a week later, a few nights later, the husband wakes up to find her dead, having um, bled out through the night, clearly of like internal bleeding that the doctor had missed, et cetera. And his reaction to it is kind of, bland like it like he doesn't he doesn't feel 
there's no like summoning up of old emotion of what brought him and Berta together in the first place now that she's dead. Um, and then there's a later letter from the husband where he's at, you know, asking, what do you want done with all these books of yours that, you know, that she still had? Because if you don't respond, I'm going to burn them. And he reflects that, the narrator reflects that the husband is trying to get away from what is his responsibility having become her husband, um, which is just like, my guy, like his wife just died. He's trying to figure some things out. That's a really weird response to have. I think that's one of my favorite um, parts of the book where the widower, Nagur, writes this letter with a huge inventory of stuff that that he perceives were, were part of Berta and the narrator's life together. It's not just books. It's like all kinds of stuff in like really, really kind of particular detail the descriptions and you just kind of visualize this guy and i don't know maybe this part of nagor's like working through his grief that he's like making this long itemized list of, of all of his his wife's stuff but yeah you're absolutely right the narrator couldn't care less and doesn't really feel any attachment to Berta, let alone to Berta's things or things that they might have shared or purchased together in their life together. Well, and, and he also, he, but he's also such a liar because when he reflects on how Berta died, he says, you know, clearly the husband isn't like me who would have stayed up all night watching her, making sure that everything is okay. I mean, despite the fact that she didn't die immediately, so it's not, maybe he did do that the first night, but this is several nights later when she does die. But also later on, he reflect the narrator reflects on the fact that he needs to take sleeping drops to sleep because if he doesn't get eight hours of sleep and he's no good and all, all this sort of thing. But the way it's structured, it sounds like he's often had to do this. this isn't just a recent development so if he needs his eight hours and he and he would be taking something to put him out there's no way in hell he could have been watching over berta making sure she was fine and catching the first instance of her starting to die so i mean like yes he is cold and he doesn't seem to have much emotion which of course plays into the title the man of feeling but he also just doesn't have he doesn't have much self-awareness, it feels like, as well. There's another time in the book um, earlier on where he's talking about sleeping with Berta. And, um, you know, she sleeps on her side, so her back is usually towards him. And he talks about this, like, I'm paraphrasing, but this sense of abandonment he feels when, like, someone someone that you're in, in bed with is, has fallen asleep and and they're no longer like caring about you or conscious of you or know whether you are alive or dead. Yeah. It's, he's, he's, he's definitely someone that, that seems to have this, the the dream and the sleeping and the dream state play a big role here. And I do think that there's a, a, a melding between like, okay, how much of this, how much of this is a dream and how much of it actually occurred? Because there are times when you almost come to believe that the dream was just like almost like an exact memory, you know, of like what happened. And then other times it's kind of like, oh, well, that was part of the dream, but didn't really happen. So it's, it, I think there's an intentional ambiguity there. Yeah, there are definitely ways in which uh, Marius could have played up 
some of those elements if he'd wanted to. Um, the staginess of some of it, like the exact the the exact movement of from one person coming by to the next person coming by to this conversation building on that conversation and and, and all those and all of those elements to it. And he definitely, I think he keeps it like you said, sort of walking walking in between the, those two states. So you're never quite you're never quite sure where 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 this is going and how much you can trust what he's relaying to you. Uh, I was also going to say that like one of the things we've talked about a bit, and this came up quite a bit with regards to Nevinson is that it seems that this narrator can't read people. He can't see as it's often put the way that like a Tupra or uh, uh, Peter Wheeler or frankly, a Berta Isla could see. Um, and I would even suggest perhaps Maria in uh, the infatuations is able to, to tease out what, what someone is and what they might be capable of and also what they will do in the future. He's very much in the moment or even stuck in the past. I mean, there is some talk. He does refer to himself as a poor relation that he was taken in by an uncle after his mother died, but he never, he never got anything nice. He had, uh, he had an off-brand toothpaste while everyone else had, had Colgate. Um, he'd be presented with a bill for expenses, that sort of thing. So there is certainly an undercurrent and a good, some conversation of his eventual rise. I mean, he he is an opera singer uh, on the up, um, but he does talk about during this period that he's relaying um, some of the older singers and their concern for their standing in the world and a really amazing scene of a singer eventually losing his mind and joining the audience because he must always have a packed house and he's looking out before the performance and there's one empty seat and he lets out a sound that even though all these people are surrounded by opera singers, um, they can't describe what it was. And he goes out and sits in the seat and then insists the performance begin, which is just a, a wonderful, like just such an amazing scene, like walking this incredible, incredible tightrope between um, sadness and hilarity that is just, yeah, really, really impressive. He is very much, it seems, surface. And yeah, it's interesting to see that. It's interesting to see that here in this novel and then in the subsequent ones, at least the next run that he go, that Marius goes on, all of his characters, or at least all of his narrators are are not that. They all see very deeply. They all think and feel and very complex and, um, I mean, almost trying to prognosticate the world, not just the, the prognosticate, I mean, frankly, prognosticate the past, present, and future. Um, whereas, and maybe it's because he's relaying a dream and there's more to him than this. I get the feeling that's not the case. I get the feeling that this is how this person would move through the world. Well, I want to ask you a question about the man of feeling or maybe more appropriately, the man of unfeeling here. Um, we, I mentioned the assignation that happens where uh, Dato conveys a note to, or a message to the narrator saying, hey, meet Natalia at 5 p.m. at this crummy hotel across the street. She's leaving her husband. And so the narrator does, and they're together for a while. And the narrator talks about that now Natalia is kind of with someone him being himself for reasons that are her own. And she's got freedom and control and self-will where she never had it with Senor Manur. And then we learn that Senor Manur is, is quite ill and Natalia runs off 
and kind of goes to be at his bedside um, while he's dying. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that, I don't know, I kind of think that this narrator was just as controlling as Senor Manor, maybe not as cruel, but they just seem so much of a type, you know, dandies and so self-absorbed and not really caring about anyone else and having to have everything their own particular way. I, I just, I, I thought that was a little bit ironic and maybe a wink when, when the narrator is going through this kind of, you know, kind of justification almost that, you know, Natalia is better off with me because, you know, she's got all this freedom now that she never had. Right. And then the next four years or so of her life are following him around from city to city to city. Yes. I mean, maybe she wanted to travel more, maybe that, but we don't ever hear that from her. This is who she's with now, and this is how they, they live. And and yeah, no, I mean, I think that's more a reflection of what he thinks that he is achieving through being with Natalia, that this is what's next. And it's probably what he thought when he when he first, you know, linked up with Berta. I mean, they're can you be an emotional social climber? Um, I think, I think in some ways that's, that's what, that's what he's doing. He's moving from, from what he thinks is the right outward manifestation representation of where he is in the world to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, though he does seem fairly bereft by a novel's end that Natalia has left him as well. Um, very suddenly with no real warning, just like she did with, although Menor had the sense that that could happen. The narrator does not present that he necessarily had that sense that was happening. He's not acknowledging it, at least. At the very least, he's not saying that. And again, I don't know how much we should trust what he says or what he actually thinks, um, or how, certainly how he presents the the series of events. I mean, and Menor, I mean, Menor does, as I said, state that he is hoping for his wife to fall in love with him. He's married in Italia, fr- frankly, as a business deal. This like the marriage was a a way for him to bail out uh, Natalia's family's company or something. So basically, something along those lines. Yeah, specifically her brother. Her brother Monte was in financial trouble. So it, it wasn't. It's not a love match, obviously. And when she does leave him, Menor shoots himself. He misses, but that's what puts him in the hospital, and eventually he dies from from his injuries. Do we think the the narrator? That that is what is in his future. I'm not in. Uh, I, I I think the novel gives us uh, maybe some suggestion that that could be the case. I'm not so sure. I don't think that that's the the type of person he is. I I think he will move on to the next person. Um, maybe that sounds a little harsh, but I'm not. But again, this is all from his perspective, from a dream that may be informed by memories that a dream of which is in fact in itself informed by memories. Um. It's all, it's so much murkier than um, so many of Maurice's work. And, and it's not exactly like the other works are terribly straightforward in their, in their presentation of the facts of the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I can't quite pinpoint it. And I was wondering, because I, I read this book for the first time, Tom, to prepare for our podcast today. I'd never read it before. And everything about this book really reminded me of Ishiguru. Hmm. Akazio Ishiguru work. And maybe it's because of the unconsoled and that's a pianist, you know, a, a kind of a, an artist that's traveling to a different country to put on a concert. And there's a lot of um, ambiguity between what the dream world of the, the um, 
protagonist is and what's really happening. But yeah, I just, I, I couldn't help think about that novel. But also, you know, just even in this very early work, and you can see that, that there are some things that I'm sure if Moraes had, if this had been Moraes's last work before he died, this the novel would be quite different uh, because it's he just wrote I think differently we can see over time but that the ambiguity and the deep complexity of the situations and the characters are all here They're, the the seeds of that that career are here even in this very early maybe fourth book that he ever wrote and so I think some of his I think maybe two of the first four haven't ever even been translated into English. No, they, they haven't. Um, El Siglo and then um, Domino Reina or the Kingdom of the Wolf, something like that. And I believe the next book after this one was All Souls. So that marks a really interesting evolution from one book to the next. But yeah, I mean, certainly you can, his style is already strongly there. I think it gets stronger, the, the sort of tripping clause work that he likes to do, the meandering down... Um, down a thought process, it just becomes even more uh, after this one. Yeah, it's it's an I, mean, I think it's a really good novel, and like I said, it feels like the kind of thing that could still be written could be written today and be felt as very fresh and very engaging. But I think it's also when seen against like his whole body of work, a sign of what's to come and fun, a fun thing, a, a great thing for a completist, and also it's short. It's 180 some odd pages. It's one you could actually read beside the pool if you're so inclined to read Javier Maria's Beside the Pool, which is what I've been doing a lot lately because it's summer break and the kids need to get to some activity somehow. But yeah, it's it's one I think about a lot. It's interesting rereading it after so long. Um, My memory of it was how much I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, or at least I enjoyed the character a lot less than I remember the first time around. Um, but that also could have been the rush of excitement of encountering a voice for the first time. It's interesting you use the term completist because I was about to say, I wouldn't put this in that category where people say, this one's only for the Moraes completist. I think I would say that I wouldn't start with this book. It wouldn't be the first Moraes that I would put in someone's hands. But I certainly think it's it's well worth the read, even if even if you're not a completist. Sure, I mean I think all Maurice's work is worth the read. So I'm kind of, I, I'm not using I guess I'm not using completist in the sense of like only if you really want to read everything. I think you should read everything by Marius. But <laughs> but yes, I was very much agree that like this can be one of the ones that would t- come in at the tail end um, of like you do not need to get to this one first. You should get to this one, but you also don't. This also probably shouldn't be the last one you read. A few of the other ones should be the last one you read. So, Yeah, agree. Good discussion, Tom. Thanks. Thanks.